Hello, listeners. Welcome to the first episode of 2024 of the Strength and Recovery Podcast, sponsored by Recovery Centers of America. I'm your host, Jay Rodenbush, Director of Alumni Engagement at RCA, and I'm sitting down today with Jane Termina. She is our Alumni Coordinator from our Monroeville, Pennsylvania location. It's located right outside of Pittsburgh, um, a beautiful facility. Um, and she serves as the alumni coordinator. She has a long um, list of qualifications, but she's a life coach and life and spirituality coach. And she specializes in grief. And I just thought, um, what better way to start our new season and to start 2024 with really talking about some of the deeper issues that people experience that kind of couple or go along with substance use disorder. And often we find that grief and substance use uh, go hand in hand and, and not dealing with the grief or not knowing how to handle grief uh, not knowing how to grieve. It, can I say that, Jane? Is that yeah, it, absolutely is, is problematic for a lot of people. For a lot so of people. Why don't you just introduce yourself? I know you've done some study. Um, of the Columbia University has a series on complicated grief treatment. So you're really experienced in this area. And you know, when I visited Monroeville and sat in on your groups, especially the grief group and um I found it fascinating in how you present um, the, you know, the different aspects of grief have been so helpful for our patients. So thank you very much. And we're just really excited to hear from you today. No, oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. It's, it's good information. And I think that in our um, Western culture, specifically in America, um, grief and loss are not part of the daily conversation. There's a lot of places in the world where um, loss is part of life and they really incorporate it. I think that a really great example of that is the Mexican culture. They have the Day of the Dead where people come together to try to connect with and stay connected to their loved ones who have died before them. So there are, that is a celebration of let's, let's present our loved ones who we are remembering very fondly today with their favorite flowers and their favorite food. And let's sing and dance and, and try to incorporate them back into our lives. It's a really wonderful tradition that, um, that other, that other cultures do, but in America, a lot of people don't even want to broach the subject that they are going to die or things around them are going to die, whether it's pets or trees or people. There's grief around all kinds of things. Um, I do like presenting this information to the recovery population because the way that you need to manage yourself through a profound grief experience is really similar to the kinds of ways that you manage your recovery. Um, the changes of people, places, and things, and the actual, the grieving, the loss of their substance, that's, that's a real thing because the substance, whether it's alcohol or drugs or, or um, food or gambling becomes part of your life. And there's a really specific relationship that people have with their substance. So that breakup, you know, grieving a breakup is a real thing. We try, um, we try to correlate all that stuff together so that people know that's, that's a natural process. So, so I think that's a, such an important point. So even though, 
you know, this is the right thing to do. You're you're giving up that substance. Maybe the temporary pleasure it brought, the 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 rituals that people put around the use, all of those things. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm sure many people are sitting with their cup of coffee. If you told me that I could never have another coffee, I would miss holding the cup. I would yes. miss, right. you know, the sound of the percolator in the morning and like yeah. all of those things. The, the cup and the, the warmth and the, and the ritual of this is how I do my additives, whether it's cream or sugar, you know, all of those things. It's part of, it's a, oh no, it's just really all, part of straight your black for me, yeah. just a black cup of coffee. Either way. <laughs> holding your black cup of coffee and the warmth of the cup and how it smells and the chair that you sit in and your favorite mug, all of those things. If they took that away from you, you have a relationship with that cup of coffee. And if you had to break it for whatever reason, you would be sad. So even though, and you know, we can correlate that to even um, any kind of relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friend relationship, if there is a breakup that way, and even though it's for the best, it's still a big part of your life that you have to let go. And so there are, ex- yeah. I, I guess what I hear you saying is we're expanding our definition of what grief is. When when yeah. you hear the word grief, you think someone died. Right. Um, but there there's an expanded definition. And that's where I think you're able to sit down with patients and say, you know, what are these emotions yeah. and how are they connected to this, this, act that we all go through, which is grief. Right. Um, Yeah, because grief comes from loss. Loss are people for sure, but there's a myriad of things that people lose. They lose, you know, empty nesters, you know, women especially who have always nurtured a family and now the family has left the nest. They've left home. They're off living their own lives. It leaves a void for a lot of people. And that that's an example of grief as well. So we call that disenfranchised grief, the grief that people may not be able to see and society doesn't recognize as major. That doesn't mean it's not major to you. So we talk about those kinds of things, too. Mm. And today I asked you to talk about, I, I've heard you give the presentation and it's just so, so good. And really, Jane is a phenomenal uh group facilitator and it, it that's an important experience in our treatment centers is being able to meet with our group facilitators and talk about different topics and how they relate to recovery and how they relate to mental health and um Jane does um a group on the seven myths of grief and so I I just thought that would be a great framework for our conversation today and so I'm going to let you launch into that. And I'm sure I, if you don't mind me interrupting from time to time and and asking questions, because I'm naturally curious and, um, but maybe before, um, just, can you tell me how much does grief, and I know we use the expanded definition, but grief as in the traumatic loss of a person, really, how often do you feel like that pops up? Um, with patients or with people with substance use disorder? I don't have a percentage, but it's often. I will say that as people are coming through the program, therapists will reach out to me fairly often 
to say that um, they their their husband died or their mother died 20 years ago or um, you know, it was a recent loss. And depending on the amount of time that has gone by, I will approach it in a different way. Um, when we have fresh loss, when something is within 12 to 18 months, it's a different kind of of healing that 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 typically happens. But if it's a if it's long ago and it's complicated because it's been buried for a while under a substance, that's when we have to do a little bit of extra digging to get it out of there. But um, it's it's pretty often. I don't have a number, but it's definitely pretty often. Um, yeah. I'll say that uh, for the and I'm just gonna we can go back and do this again. But it's the sixth major sixth major myths of grief not seven that i have for today i have oh, more okay. but yeah but the program is, well, is we, we just minutes. may yeah we may throw in a couple ourselves well, right? listen, i have <laughs> i have several but it, the, this specific program is is uh just for the six but okay. so I'll so i pulled yeah so i pulled I even this, wrote six down that's ah, whatever yeah um so for today i from the grief recovery method which people can freely um, access online, but the grief recovery method introduces um, six major myths of grief, and we can go through those um, pretty pretty quickly. And I think that they're going to sound common to people. I think so. Um, you know, grief is the natural response to loss. It's a it is not a diagnosis. Grief is not a diagnosis. It's a verb. It's something that you have to do. And since it's not a diagnosis, mm. you really can't medicate yourself through it. I, and to, I love that. Yeah. You, you have to do grief. Grief is a verb without question. And because mm -hmm. I, you know, and I ask and I ask the patients and I ask people that I know, if you've tried to medicate yourself through grief, it, what happens is it just sits there waiting for you. It doesn't mm -hmm. go away. So when you sober up or if you're doing something else to try to avoid it, whether you're working too much or um distracting yourself somehow when you wake up the next day it's still there and it's something that is supposed to be felt it's not something that we're supposed to just put in a box and put away on a shelf you know so when we talk about the major myths of grief myth number one is not to feel bad so when we talk about don't feel bad we're talking about um, not acknowledging the feeling so this this will actually this myth comes into play with um, with relationships or with substance for sure. If I tell you, you know, don't feel bad about losing something, that's heartbreaking because I can't judge what someone else's loss is compared to mine. And I will share that um, I I've taken grief on because my only child died in a car accident in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I do have a, a, a profound understanding of how painful it is to have your heart ripped out of your chest. You know, um, that being said, I can't compare my loss to someone who has lost their favorite pet. Maybe that's the hardest thing that they've had to do to date. And that pain is real. We have to meet people where their pain is so that we can teach them how to feel it in healthier ways, as opposed to medicating ourselves through it, which is what I see a lot in treatment. So when we talk think, about, yeah, go ahead. I think having gone through the groove process myself mm -hmm. um, in, in different ways, people want to cheer you up, right? Right. Like, and there's this need that people need you to be happy. Like, are you okay now? Are you okay? Like, 
And and I think that goes to not only do we not want to feel bad and maybe the loss, you know, maybe it's someone's end to suffering. Maybe it is, you know, we, we know it's for the best, but we still feel sad. We still mourn. We still have these acts of grief. Um, Absolutely. Like you said. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think and and especially as children may, um, go through grief, we think if we can just cheer them up, make them feel better, take them to Disneyland. And it 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 really that's it's it's part of the medicating or trying to numb. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the the example that they give, I'll just read a, a, a little blurb and, and play off of that, is that, you know, as young children, we're we're teaching them not to feel bad. So the example they give is when, let's say, a child is on the playground and someone is mean to them for whatever reason and the child comes home from school and any caretaker, the mom, the dad, the grandma, whoever's in charge of caring for that child that day, sees the child upset and says, what's happened? And the kid says, so-and-so was mean to me today and they're, they're in their feels about it. And caretaker will say, oh, here, have a cookie, you'll feel better. So we're trying to mask it with sugar as children are, are are small and we're not giving them a chance to run through the entire emotion to its completion. It's cut off by the cookie. So then when they circle back around to it, because that's what your body will do and that's what your mind will do. I've not resolved this yet. And the caretaker will say, oh, that's over. You know, we're moving past that have another cookie. So on top of not being taught to let your emotions flow through to their completion, we're also teaching them that there's an escape route. So even Mm -hmm. though the child feels different, they don't feel better. So when we talk about not feeling bad and not teaching our children to embrace disappointment and hurt and anger and sadness, we're not setting them up for the rest of their lives, not being able to manage their emotions. So as time goes by, they're always going to look for something else to kind of mask what they're feeling when as human beings, we're designed to be able to withstand all of these things. So let's not, you know, the, America has a really, a really great way of wanting everybody to be happy all the time. And that's happy is not a state of being. We are mm-hmm. human people who have been given have been given the all of the emotions, the entire range of emotion, and we're supposed to experience them all for good, bad, or ugly. It's just part of what we do. And we, when we deny our being the ability to experience all emotions, that's when we may get into trouble later in life, when we have access to things that are not as healthy or not as good to, yeah. you know, to self-soothe. We kind of hijack that reward system and yeah. say, then when I'm feeling bad or when I go to these emotions, I need yes, something. And you don't need something. Or just, I get, right? Yeah. Maybe it's not even I need. Could maybe it's that. I get. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the danger zone for sure. Um, I, I, I had a patient one time say to me, so I'm just supposed to let them be unhappy? And I said, yes. You are supposed to let them be unhappy and teach them how to be unhappy. Because when Mm. children are out of our care, when they're adults, when they are teenagers and they're out in the world, the rest of the world is not going to look at them and go, oh, but it's Jane. It's okay. We'll, We'll just give her what she needs to make her happy. That's not what happens. And when, when, 
we as adults or we as teenagers are butt up against the world then and we're not getting our way, we don't know what to do. And and honestly, what we just have to do is kind of circle back around and feel the emotion, let it play out. And yeah, it's it's different on the other side and it's and it's healthier. And I, I think in in playing that out further as the caregiver, being able to show your own unhappiness, not that we always want to be sad for our kids, but um you know, when you're, I've lost two moms in a very short amount of time. And, um, you know, to be able to sit with the kids and say, yeah, today's a really rough day. I'm really, you know, uh, we were doing Christmas shopping and we walked through them all. And my daughter looks at me and she goes, you're missing mom, aren't you? And, and I said, you know what I am. And we were able to have a nice conversation. She recognized that, in somewhere I should have been really happy. I was feeling a certain sort of way and we had a really nice moment, which was also powerful. Yes. So I think teaching your kids that it's okay to grieve, that, that that's part of grief, that sadness, that loss, that not being on top of the world. Um, There's going to be days we're not on top of the world. That's just the, the life cycle. It's, it's what we do. So when we talk about not feeling bad, um, you gave a good example earlier. What if someone has, you know, really lived out their life? They're 98 years old and they're getting to a place where mm. they're excused from being just because it was an appropriate and natural end to a life. That doesn't mean you're not going to miss people. You're allowed to still be sad about mm-hmm. that. When you have a breakup that you know is a that is appropriate for your mental health or for your being, but you've still invested a lot of time, you can still be sad about that, even though it's for the best. You don't have to be happy that you're getting divorced because you don't like the person anymore. You can still retreat and go, wow, but all of that time or all of those experiences, you're you're allowed to grieve the loss of that and still move forward. It's okay. So. It's so good. Yeah. So that's All right. We got to get back one. to our yeah. list. We're All right. Just, we're never so gonna... myth number two is replacing the loss. Oh. We we give examples of, um, you know, this kind of goes hand in hand with don't feel bad. Um, that what, you know, so if you are replacing a loss, if this happens a lot with pets, right? So I've not completely gone through the loss of the dog or the cat or the fish or what whatever creature was making your life super happy and thinking that you can just replace the loss with another pet sometimes that stacks up and it doesn't and it doesn't play out well so when we do that with children thinking that they can just replace losses that becomes a problem as you're growing and and a lot of times i refer to the children because that's kind of where we get our programming for how we how we conquer and how we deal with things that are uncomfortable so that kind of starts that way in in don't you think in people's efforts to make you feel better, they say really stupid things, right? <laughs> Can we just they, call it call a spade a spade? They're trying. It's okay. Um, everybody just wants you to feel better. And that's because when, when you have not learned to resolve your own emotions, when you see other people who are emotional, it is hard for you because people tend to take on what other people are feeling. And I always tell everybody, you cannot feel other people's feelings for them. You cannot process grief for someone else. You cannot process disappointment for someone else. You have to give them the tools and the ability and and the pleasure 
of doing it on your own because that's how you're going to learn. And that's why I think people want to tamp that down, especially parents. We don't want to see our beloved cherubs feel badly about anything, but it's our job to help them learn how to feel angry and how to feel sad. But you've heard people say, oh, well, you know, there's more fish in the sea, like if it related to a breakup or yes, that's the next God example, forbid, sure. you know, somebody loses a child and they say, well, you can have you more will. kids. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And the pain in that moment. Um, yeah. And and I think you're right. Having compassion for that person, because maybe you're recognizing they haven't experienced it themselves. Yeah. Or they've experienced it and they've not been able to process it in yeah. a good way. So Either. it's 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 making them feel it again. And so feelings are feelings. They're not thinking. You cannot think your way out of grief and reason it. So when oh, we yeah. Ex- yeah, so when we talk about replacing losses, that really comes in with relationships, as you mentioned. There's more fish in the sea. I'll just get another boyfriend. I miss this person, so I'm going to replace them with somebody else because I think I need somebody around. And what happens is, especially in relationships, when we replace losses with relationships and we have not gone through the entirety of the emotion that is involved with a breakup loss, we are compounding all of the things that we experienced. So that means that when we take on another relationship and we've not resolved the emotion that was with the first one, we're bringing the emotion of the first one that has not been rectified into the next relationship. The example that I give a lot in groups is, have you been on the receiving end of someone who is bringing the ghost of a past relationship into the relationship that you are in? Are you looking for the behaviors of the other person in this one? And that is actually going to cancel out your ability to be open and vulnerable with the person you are currently with. 50% of marriages end in divorce, probably because they have not resolved prior relationships because most people do not marry their first love. Mm -hmm. So if you've not gone through all of your feels about a breakup, then you're bringing all of that baggage into the next relationship and if 50 percent of those marriages end in divorce and then we replace that loss and get married again 75 percent of relationships don't work out that way either because now you have two layers of baggage that you've not dealt with so replacing the loss can really be a problem it just compounds all of the negative feelings or all of the difficult feelings i don't want to say they're negative because they're there to help you all of our feelings are there to help us they may be uncomfortable but they're not negative they're there for a really specific reason to help us figure out who we are how we feel about the world where we need to apply our boundaries moving forward there's a lot of really great information in 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 heartache yeah for sure and don't you think you know having that expanded definition of grief and doing this work relate that back again to recovery process when someone doesn't do the work and and relationships and and unhealthy relationships can be a real trigger um and, yeah. and a real part of um active addiction yeah and it's and it actually plays a big part in um in relapse for sure, and slip-ups, because if you are not accustomed to feeling the pain of emotional loss and emotional hurt, that's when we get into trouble. And we and if it's buried, your body remembers. 
-hmm. and your body's going to find a way to bring it up for you. And if you are not familiar with what it feels like, you're going to look to medicate yourself, whether it's with alcohol or drugs or food. So replacing the loss and not feeling bad kind of go hand in hand with this, because when we start feeling bad because of a breakup or because of whatever, we try to either get something else to replace it or tamp it down because we're not supposed to feel bad. Those things go hand in hand. And especially in recovery, because if you've not learned how to feel uncomfortable with the emotion that arises, that is there to teach Mm -hmm. you something about the world and yourself, you try to medicate yourself through it. And And we, we hear a lot, the phrase becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Putting yourself allowing yourself to be in uncomfortable circumstances. Like Mm -hmm. um, I know um, often people want to get involved or want to come tell their story. And they're like, I'm so uncomfortable with public speaking, but I'm trying to allow myself to become comfortable with those things that are, are uncomfortable. So And sometimes it's just having a good conversation with somebody that you trust, someone that has earned your vulnerability. When you have these conversations, whatever that thing is that's driving you crazy inside, once you say it out loud and give it a name or speak of it, it loses its power over you. So that's why the meetings are so important. And that brings us to myth number three is grieving alone. Mm. We're not to grieve alone. We are a communal tribal being and we're supposed to do everything together this is really one that does hit home with the recovery community because this is very similar when people start to isolate that's when we get into trouble we get a little heady we get too much in of our thoughts when we don't have anyone to speak to because either we don't feel like they're going to understand or it's unrelatable or it's embarrassing i've had people say my mom died 20 years ago i should be over this by now And that's not how it works, right? I will say to the groups, my son died in 2015. When is the appropriate time for me to be over it? And everybody says, you'll never get over it. And I said, that's exactly right. And neither will you. What we try to do is learn how to manage how we feel about it and how to incorporate our losses into our story because they're really important. Our losses are how we become who we are. Our losses are what we represent of the person that has gone. So we are the legacy, whether they are our contemporaries, whether they are our parents, whether they are our children, how we grieve is our legacy for that person. So how well are we representing our grief to show the love because the amount of grief equals the amount of love. So how are we showing the world what this person meant to us? If I decided at some point to sit in a corner with, you know, a bottle of Tito's, that's not serving Michael's memory at all. Mm -hmm. And that's not serving your loved one's memory either. So how would you like that person to be remembered through you? Let's work on that. So grieving alone um, is a big, big problem. And I'm seeing a lot of this happen in society now because there's a trend for people not to have funerals. Big trend. Mm. I don't want you to spend the money. I don't want people looking at me in the box. I I don't want the attention, those kinds of things. Whether you want that or not, people are still going to grieve for you. And by science, we know that when the rituals begin, 
when the funerals begin, that's when your brain starts to recognize that this is real. When you mm. gather, when people come together, when you are given an opportunity to hear about how much someone liked your loved one, or you're able to receive a hug that day, whether you're standing at the box or you're not standing at the box, like however it goes, there's a void that comes into play when people are not given an opportunity to love on you when someone has died. So grieving alone becomes a problem if you're not able to express what's happening for you, because then that's what gets buried inside. That's when people say, oh, it's been this amount of time and you're not over it by now. All of those kinds of things. There's a difference between isolation and solitude. I personally am a big fan of solitude. I love my alone time. That's when I can reflect. That's when I can rest. That's when I can um, participate in self-care. Isolation is when you're choosing to stay out of society because you don't want to talk about it, because you're going to self-medicate, because you're going to ruminate in how awful you feel. That's I, I love that yeah. distinction between isolation and solitude. I, I think that is a really important point because, you know, I too, I, I, I was the youngest child by a long shot. Like I grew up with a lot of alone time. Right. And I, I kind of crave that as part of my, you know, and thankfully my family is used to that. My husband was an only child, so he has his own sense of solitude, but not allowing that to come into isolation and, and removing yourself from society and all of the things and, and social obligations yes. right? as right, a right. means of you know, it's it's one thing I, I we talked to in other episodes about it's okay to say no it's okay to and for that to be enough you don't have to say yes to every social engagement you know it's okay to have boundaries right. but when you find yourself avoiding right you at least yes. need to ask why yeah and that's why meetings are so important that's why we tell people to stay connection the opposite of addiction is connection this is a really great opportunity for you to learn that it is okay to speak up, to say how you feel, and this is how it applies to recovery. Get to the rooms, get to the meetings, get online, just listen. A lot mm -hmm. of times if you're just listening, you're going to hear something similar to what you're going through or have gone through, and you won't feel alone. So these are the, these are the things that we have to really, um, you know, even though it's painful to say things out loud, a lot of times I will say that it gets stuck in my throat and it comes out my eyes. Sometimes I can freely oh, yeah. speak of Michael, but for me, sometimes it gets stuck in my throat and it comes out my eyes. And I think that everybody relates to that because there's all there's all kinds of times when you're speaking of something and all of a sudden it gets stuck and you, oh, and you can feel it coming. Yeah. In that early grief period, I think that's what kind of people are afraid of. Am I yeah. going to be able to keep my emotions in check and knowing, you know, you don't have to, that's right. not a part exactly. of it. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. Let's what's yeah. number four. Jane? So number four is my favorite one. The time heals all wounds. If time healed all wounds, we would all be fine. Wouldn't we? But that's not how it works. It's Ooh. the work you do in the time. So when I am, 
in a situation where I am comforting or aware of someone who has had a big loss, I never say, give it some time. I always say, this is going to take some work, but you can do it. And the work is just feeling badly. The work is allowing yourself to feel sad. The work is allowing your body to receive all of the things that people have to offer when they're trying to comfort you. People, all of the things that people have to offer, whether it's, you know, food or some people will, you know, provide cash if you're strapped for some reason. There's donations, all the all the things that people have to offer. And sometimes when you're on the receiving end of love, it's foreign because people don't know how to do that. But that's where the work is. It's not time. It's the ability to sit with your emotions about it and let them run their complete course. I think this is an important thing to remember in recovery too is that you know a lot of times people who are who are not familiar with um addiction or how it impacts a person that this could be a lifelong or it is a lifelong um part of someone's journey and so getting you know whether they come to us for 30 days and um hopefully they'll continue in treatment and do our outpatient because we know the longer people stay in treatment, the better success rates they have. Right. Um, and, and they go through the process, they go to meetings, maybe they do start feeling better a year in two years in, and, and maybe all of a sudden thoughts come up and it's like, wait a minute, but I had this much time. I should. Mm. Yeah. It's the work over it. Yeah. It's the work you do in the time. And that specifically can translate back to being in recovery as well. It doesn't matter how long you went to treatment. If you were sitting in treatment, like it was a resort, not a rehab, and you weren't doing the work, then you're not going to, you're, you're not going to get better. So the longer that you, um, the longer you stay in something, if you're not doing the work, you're coming out just the same. And it happens a lot. I think as you go through life, if you're not doing it. So let me go back. I also tell the patients the definition of cheating is not doing the work. Whether you're taking a test because you didn't study, you're cheating, right? You didn't do the work. If you're in a relationship and you cheat on your significant other, that's because if you were uncomfortable, you weren't doing the work with your partner to make sure that you guys were in a healthier state. You know, if you're cheating on your diet, you're not doing the work. So cheating is just not doing the work. Cheating in grief is not doing the work as well. You're not. And honestly, when it just comes back to you have to let yourself feel bad about it. And that's normal and natural and honoring and all of the things that we need to do. There's still some cultures, I think, that will wear the black armband when someone is in mourning. I kind of wish that we would do that again because yeah. it, it would be nice to to not just look at someone with maybe not the happiest look on their face and go, hey, why aren't you smiling? Because that's sometimes offensive to people. You know, maybe they're I mean, going through something that's really, really awful. And it would be nice if we had some kind of signal. I remember when Michael died, I remember going to the store thinking, can people tell by looking at me that I am not in a good way right now? But there was no way for people to know. And I think it would be kind 
if you had some kind of signification where people would just kind of back off because you were working on something like that would be really great, you know, but so when we talk about time healing all wounds, just know that that is not a thing. It's the work mm. you do in the time and the work you do is allowing yourself to feel the pain. Bottom line. Ugh. Yeah. So good. All right. We're on number five. Okay. So number five is being strong for others. Mm. That it that we can get into a lot of and into a lot of trouble with that. There is a reflex that kind of kicks in when we have to tend to the events surrounding a death specifically. We have to get with the funeral home. We have to maybe pick readings for a ceremony. We have to arrange for a luncheon if you don't have help with that. There are tasks that need to be done around ceremony and around ritual. And people will say, wow, she looks like she's doing really well up there. She's not curled up in a ball and crying. There's some, there's a mechanism that comes up that allows you to get through the days. What happens sometimes is people don't circle back around to the pain. So after events are over, after people stop sending chicken to your house, after everybody's gone home and you're on your own a couple weeks later, that's when the work starts. And just because all of those things are over and you performed them well, that doesn't stop the pain from coming. Right. So, you know, my mom just died in October. So I'm mm -hmm. still floating around through all of those things. And I'm really adhering to what I need to do to self-soothe, to put myself in a place where I'm able to acknowledge my mom's passing in a healthy way without having to power through because, well, that was three months ago, so I should be fine by now. That's not how it works, right? We talked about that. Or, you know, maybe other people are having their outward grief expression. And so in those moments, you're the strong one. And right. Uh, you know, well, I need to be strong for my kids or I need to be strong, you know, and I think this happens to the loved ones when, uh, you know, it, it it can happen. Let's say when, when you have someone in treatment, maybe the spouse is like, well, this affected the whole family. I've yes. got to be strong. I, and they have grief there's loss there's about the relationship how this person is responding to substance there's emotion there but they're never dealing with it um you know as their loved one is getting well so making sure the whole family unit um is is considered in the grief process is considered yeah. in the substance use treatment yeah. planning because right. like, this it is we say addiction is a family disease it is. but i think grieving includes your family too whether it's a relationship whether it's a physical loss of someone passing it does. um and that's what's great about rca is that we do have so many things that are available for families Mm -hmm. We have we have virtual groups that talk about all of these things that circle around with grief with families as well. It's it's really important for everyone to realize that grief on every level affects the entire family mm -hmm. and everyone, you know, lots of times. So, you know, the people who rally around you when you get past the being strong during events there are people, your network of whoever your people are, 
right? And you know who your people are, the people who allow you to emote, the people who will just listen to you. Um, I know that, you know, after my, I give this example too, when Michael died, I had really specific people that I could reach out to when I was having hard, hard days about it. People who loved me dearly were unable to do that because it was too emotional mm -hmm. for them. I couldn't reach out to my mom. My mom was unable mm -hmm. to hold that space for me. And that was fine because she had her own grief over Michael's death. That had nothing to do with me. I have to let people do their own thing about it. But I did have a network of people that I could go to. And that's and that's good. So be I had to be kind of be strong for my mom because I knew that she would be heartbroken knowing how how hard it was for me. So I kind of kept her out of that because that wasn't it wasn't good for her. But I did have people. So good. You had to find yeah. people that was good. That didn't mean that she didn't love me. That just meant that it was hard for her. And I had to let her do her grief process over how badly she felt for me as a daughter, plus lost the first grandchild. Like that was that was hard work for everybody. And I had to be respectful of that. That's why being strong for others had to become off the table. And I had to find my my tribe that was going to help me with that. And that's important to make sure that you are acknowledging all that stuff. And and knowing that the recovery community serves a very important yes. role in being able to talk about triggers, being able to talk about cravings um, in a way that doesn't take your family back to the crisis moment, right? Right. You know, we, when you talk to patients and they say, well, if I tell my mom I'm having a craving, she's going to, you know, but right. other people who've gone through that, who understand it, you can, you can feel free to say, okay, I'm having this and, and they don't go back right back to the crisis. They can say, okay, let me help you strategize through that. So right. and that, the and power that's of community. Yes. And that's how it all works together with all of the myths coming through. So being strong for others, you may have to put on a different face when you're dealing with your family because they're grieving the loss of the person that was not addicted. Right. So you didn't start out. Maybe you didn't express or start out a, a, in addiction to that, to to whatever your substance is. But your family remembers you before you were addicted to something it, or before you were out, you know, but changed into the person that this is. So they're grieving the loss of their, their person before addiction. Now they have mm -hmm. the person who is an addict of whatever the substance is, and they're grieving the loss of the person before that, that they knew, because I always say nobody holds a brand new baby in their arms and goes, Oh, you're going to be trouble. I can tell by looking at you. Nobody does that. Right. So when so when our family members become in, ingrained in something that's really unhealthy, the family grieves the fact that they're not going to have that person who is not an addict again. So being strong. So when I say being strong for others through this, when you are the person who is trying to get to meetings, you can kind of put on a a, a a healthier face for your family, but you can't stay there. That's why the meetings are important so that you do have your tribe of people that you can express to so that you don't get stuck in the being strong for others while you're grieving the loss of yeah. your addiction or the loss of your substance. When you're grieving the loss of your substance, you still have to have an outlet to be able to express how and you're I feeling think about it. It doesn't mean that you're not truthful with your family and say, right. today's a hard day. Right. 
but you can learn and, and the recovery community helps you learn. What can I say, you know, that lets them know today is a hard day. I need a meeting. And then you can give the details to someone who's equipped to handle that. Right. Right. And it, mm-hmm. not everyone's a therapist. Your mom's not a therapist. Right. You're, you know, they're not your sponsor. And so learning what roles people can play in your lives and what's healthy for them. And often, um, you know, we put a lot of expectations on the spousal relationship to be all things to one person and learning. Um, and even with grief, you know, like, man, I should be able to just unload. That's an awful weight to put on one person. And so, yeah, yeah you, you don't have to be strong for others, but learning to be honest, but also finding people who can meet different needs um, for you to be able to express things you need right. to express. And I think that people who are in recovery, if you've been in recovery for a minute or 10 years, when someone asks you how you're doing and you just say, I'm fine, I'm fine as a misnomer, I'm fine doesn't count, I'm fine is being strong for others. Know your audience mm-hmm. where if someone says, how are you doing? It's like, I'm struggling today. That's okay. That actually shows more strength. You know, crying during sad events shows strength. There are time. There are some times in group where I will have that stuck in my throat and come out my eyes for for a little bit. I know how to self soothe and pull myself out of it. But anytime I ask the communities, did that make you upset, or did that did that make you think that I I was weak because I was crying in front of people? They were like, mm-hmm. absolutely not. That that showed us how strong you are. And I wish that people in general would embrace that, that your Mm. display of emotion and your ability to flow through all of the things that life have to offer are what your strength is built on. And Mm -hmm. I, and I hope that people get that message when they're coming through the program for sure. Okay. Number six, number six, keeping busy. This is another way to um, avoid feeling stuff and people sometimes, you know, being busy will help for a minute if you're trying to jump in and out of your new life. So once you get to the point where you really have to feel what it's like to have an existence without that person or that pet or that substance, it's going to be foreign. It's going to be uncomfortable until you learn how to feel what the world is like without that person with you. Busy is jumping in and out. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to come back. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to come back. But if when you are performing these acts, when you when you're not busy or you're not trying to, you know, spend all of your time doing something. When you come out of that and and then you sit down and you're like, oh, still sad, still feeling the loss. I should do something. So this goes away. It doesn't. It's the same thing as trying to medicate. So I, so I really correlate the keeping busy with using a substance with self-medicating. And how does that relate um, in recovery? They will often say, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, you Mm -hmm. know, you need to find community, get of service. Like, so a lot of the strategies are keeping yourself busy and occupied. How would you say, what's the balance, I guess, between not just filling your calendar, but also not because isolation is so much a part of addiction. So what, how would you relate that? 
if you're staying too busy, if you're not giving yourself an opportunity to feel what it's like to be sober, because sober is going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people for a long time. And if you keep busying yourself, if you work yourself to exhaustion every day so that you don't have to acknowledge anything, that's when we get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So you're doing 90 meetings in 90 days. You are um, you're keeping yourself involved in meetings. You're you're doing everything you can to occupy all of your time. That is not sustainable for your whole life. You have to learn what it feels like to have a missing person, to have missing substance, to learn how to self-soothe because what because it's it's unattainable. You can't just stay busy all the time. You can't work yourself into the ground because then you're just going to wear your body out anyway. And those feelings of loss are still going to be there if you don't acknowledge them. So when you get to the end of the day, and if you have not worked yourself into exhaustion where you're sleeping, you still have to kind of sit back and go, okay, this is what sober feels like. Mm -hmm. This is what my emotions feel like now that I'm sober. Because a lot of times, if we have been trying to tamp down all of the negativity with a substance, the negativity might still be there when you're sober. How are you going to manage yourself? And that's where therapy comes in. That's where outpatient comes in. That's where having a community comes in where you have people around you who understand and can hold space for you while you're having a conversation and can hold space from you when for you when you are um, sad or when you're angry. And let's work together on trying to figure out what's the best way for me to move forward where I don't have to work myself to exhaustion. So when we talk about keeping busy, we're talking about working ourselves to exhaustion, which is what yeah. we don't want to do. I think that's good. And I think you, you raised a super important point about this is where outpatient comes in handy. This is where, you know, just going to seven days and getting the substance out of your system isn't enough. We have to deal with all the stuff and all the baggage we've got. And so having the tools of of having a regular therapist with outpatient programming for a while gives the brain time to heal and time to learn and try to process. Because when you come into treatment, we're not going to pick around on everyone's deepest, darkest stuff. We, we've got a, you've got a lot of healing um, that you're doing um, just with the body, right? Like, yeah. you know, right. and, and getting the substance relieved, getting, it's almost like triage, right? And then we need to start, um, it's step one and then step two, um, getting into longer term treatment, finding those meetings, finding the support groups. I think that's so important. I'd, I'd like you to end. I, I've heard you say several times and, and it's it's becoming a buzzword. Um, it's it's more something you've heard in, in the last little bit. You say find people who can hold space for you. Will you define that? What do you what does that mean to you? And um just what what should people be looking for? Holding holding space means when you sit with someone, number one, you're not feeling their emotions for you. You are not trying. Number two, you're not trying to fix them. And this is if you are the person, if yeah. you're holding space for another. Yes. If you are okay. the holder, of, if you are the person that somebody comes to because they need an ear, they need to vent. They need to show emotion somehow. You are the per the person holding space is someone who is not going to try to soothe them, 
give them excuses as to why they feel the way they do. You're not the person who is trying to fix them or give them suggestions. You're just the person who is able to sit and listen. And listening is a really important skill. You are not distracted by your phone or the TV. You're able to make eye contact and just not say a word and just sit and be with the person fully. So when you're holding space, when you are able to relate, when you are free of distraction and that person feels important, important enough that you do not have one other thing on your mind but them, that's probably the best person that you can find. And once you have been on the receiving end of that, then you'll be able to do it for someone else too. It's beautiful. Jane, thank you so much uh, just for your work and for joining us today. This has been enlightening and I I really believe it's going to help a lot of people just to be able to put some thoughts about the, around you know, those myths that come with the grieving process. And I go back to what you said in the beginning, grief is a verb. We have to do the work of grief and all of us have something in our life. Um, you say uh, you're not in personal recovery, but you say you're in, how did you word that? Right. So I, I just let everybody know that even though I'm not um, addicted to any substance, in particular, I am in recovery from life. There's been all kinds of things that I've had to get through and I do my best to work to get through them every day. And it is work. Some days are harder than others, but it's manageable if you dig in. And if I can be an example to help people learn how to feel life fully, then that's, I hope that I'm, I'm doing a good job. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us today on the Strength in Recovery podcast. Please share this podcast with others. We would like to get the word out. Um, These are great recovery stories, recovery topics. um, And uh, if you have a topic you're interested in, or you know someone who would be a great, um, uh, would enjoy being on the podcast, let us know. We'd love to hear some feedback from you. So, and especially if you'd like to go on um, one of the platforms and leave us a a great review, that would be helpful as well. strengthinrecovery.com. And if you or someone you know needs help, please reach out. Um, Our Mission Center employees are wonderful. They understand addiction. They understand crises moments and can help you through. We have interventionists who will talk to your loved one who can help give you some strategies. So please call 1-833-RCA-ALUM and let us see how we can partner with you to help your loved ones or yourself find long-term recovery. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. 
We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery Podcast.